the ball. Kicks the Hawks back into attack. In the 10 meter square. by Curran, he can't break away. Malakalis's handball is smothered. Buse flips it back, but it's Kennedy who swings on the loose ball. Bacchanari to an open goal. Is this another Hawthorne goal? Yes, there is. Kick off the ground by Dicky Domenico. The Hawks have the numbers on this Memphis win. Bacchanari over the top, Anderson. Into an open goal goes Anderson, and it's there. It looks like it's all over. The dream of back-to-back pennants is all the fair as far as the Hawks are concerned. There's the siren. G'day Hawks fans and welcome to a very special edition of the Hawk Talk podcast featuring our interview with author Tony Wilson who's put out a great book, 1989 The Great Grand Final. Terrific read, it really fills the void after that. Well, it's a pretty abrupt fade to black on the DVD box set, isn't it? It's one of those things, and you'll hear us talk about it in the interview itself, where it very much enhances the game. It'll immerse you into this classic. It'll make you want to go back and watch it, all the highlights, and you know, you can even these days indulge in the Triple M call if you want. There's so many ways to enjoy this game. And I mean, decades after the fact, we're still talking about it. There's still so much to say, and we've added to it here. Yeah, well, there's so many backstories. There's Ablett, who was once at the club, and then there's Jeans returning to coach for the back-to-back that he's wanted his whole career, and there's legends everywhere you look. There's there's so many players out there, but it's left to the second tiers to actually lift the cup for Hawthorne. The question with a game like this is, where do you even begin? And I'd like to take us pre-match, tiers into the Hawthorne rooms, but there was a tiny little TV playing a montage of Hawthorne highlights, some good stuff they'd done over the years, smothers, marks, tackles, all the hard stuff. And the soundtrack to this montage was all fired up by Pat Benatar. <laughs> okay. A most unlikely soundtrack. It had beat the one that was out on the ground <laughs> and then entered the cat's change rooms to tell him he was on them, uh, Johnny Farnham. And promptly told to piss off. <laughs> That's quite interesting. (laughs) I think that's the perfect place to start. Just as Pat Benatar led the Hawks out onto the field in a manner of speaking, it'll lead us into this interview with author Tony Wilson to talk about his new book, 1989, The Great Grand Final. Sit back, relax, and relive a classic. In the lead-up to this interview, Tony, I've personally shared my excitement with friends who aren't necessarily into their footy just excited to talk about this great game and the question I've got a couple of times was along the lines of what makes this such a great game and I was wondering if you could have a crack at trying to sum it up for someone who might be unacquainted with the game. Well it's got many ingredients of a great game uh, and even more than many it's got almost all the ingredients of a great game Um, it's got a close finish which uh, many great games have that because the attention is maintained right into the last dying seconds of the game I think that's really important Um, it's also got a style of game that uh, I think I used the expression uh, a beautiful anachronism uh, for one of the chapter headings and so the ball pings around the MCG with one-on-one contests everywhere. And it means that 42 goals are kicked on the game, um, during the game. Uh, It's also got huge personalities. So players that are Hall of Famers now um, dot the ground. Uh, There's, of course, Ablett. 
and Gary Hocking for Geelong that have gone on to be in the Australian Football Hall of Fame, but also Langford and Dipper and Ayres and Platten. And, and these these guys are iconic names um, that have stood up over 30 years as greats of the game. Um, it's also got all these little storylines. Um, if you have to write 60,000 words about one game, just to have so many little plot threads, that not as many... Um, games don't usually have a, a, pr- a preordained hit. You know, that's that takes planning and meetings and things like that. And and the idea that it was a revenge drama really in in, a, in three parts. Um, you know, it even goes on to a, a little altercation in a in a pub in London um, a few a few weeks after the game. So you know that sense that um, Yates and Dermot had um, a history, and then it was a, a pre-organised hit, and and that it was executed so well from a Geelong perspective. Um, that that I think is compelling. Um, there's injuries all over the place, which add to the drama. In in an era before there were four on the bench, both. Um, both sides are, are, are really struggling to f- field a fit 18 um, really quite early in the game. Uh, and then there's violence. And so um, violence is, a, is a, a difficult issue to talk about because I think, um, and I try to make this point in the book, that, um, that you know, we don't want it. It's good that trial by, by video was taking over at this point. Um, you really don't want people doing either what Yates did or what Dipper did in, in, in an even more blatant way, you know, to... To, to 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 get the, uh, the 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 forearm up and to knock out Gary Hocking's teeth, I mean that stuff makes this a compelling game. But it's um it's it's kind of good that it's been ironed out. But there are a lot of that's a lot of ingredients. Um, that's uh it's 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 a fever pitch, and there's hardly a there's hardly a ten minute stretch of that game where where you're not um utterly riveted. Um and and it's actually. When watching it, I think a lot of us watch it with with a lot of nostalgia, um, and because there's there's so many patches of modern footy where you go, oh god, another stoppage, another ball up, another tackle, sixteen people ringing the ball, oh, and then someone does something brilliant, you know. So, you know, Tom Mitchell finds an impossible avenue out of a pack, or or Dangerfield breaks a pack to pack, and it's not that footy doesn't have these um, incredible highlights. Um, it's just that they they just didn't flow like it did in 89. Well, I found it quite interesting. I've always wondered about the the genes sort of premonition about Dermy having the gun to his head and, and the fact that um, it was such a, it's almost a betrayal of, of Brereton's trust. You know, he, he told genes all this stuff and then he brings it out in front of the group. And yet when he's screaming in pain, the thing that comes back to him is Gene's words. So... He's just so entrenched in Dermot's psyche, isn't he? But did he have an inkling that they were they were gunning for him, or or how does that? So I argued in the book that they must have had an inkling that that they were gunning for him because if anyone who watched that second semi final, where in the space of twenty minutes Dermot ironed out three bombers, basically put them out of the game, or at least uh, very much shook up their their structure. You've got um, first of all. Daisy Williams was put in a bear hug and ended up on the bench and he'd been tagging Platten. Platten went from being a one possession player in the first quarter of the second semi to being most people's best on ground at the end of the second semi. So what Dermot did to Williams was um, crucial to our fortunes. He then lays out Vanderhaar, 
I was 20 metres from that, and I still remember the sound of it. It was wow. just the most brutally timed, um, sweetest. They used sweetest in a, in, a, in a macabre way because the hit was just... Um, the, hit, the hit was horrific, really. Like, it, it put him into next week, and, um, and, and yet, within the rules of the time, the umpire was right there, decided it was not a deliberate hit to the head, and... Um, and it was within five metres. Dermot didn't raise his elbow, no free kick. So he actually run, runs along behind Pritchard and and, um, and I think Pritchard scores the goal. Um, but, you know, there's two down in 10 minutes and then a little further on he, he, he fixes up um, Manning as well. So three Essendon players go down in half an hour and there's just a sense that it's he's rampaging. And, he, and he'd really been doing it for two years. So... Uh, 88 and 89. Whenever he took the field, it was a he was he was at the peak of his powers um, uh, in terms of his ability to both be a skillful match winner, but also a brutal presence. and And so there was a sense that he was going to come um, with nothing to lose uh, in 1989. Um, and so Blight thought he would come for. Um, for Couch, and that is why the Yates plot was made. But Dermot, uh, but Jeans must have thought they'll come for him. They'll, they'll they'll either provoke him or they'll try to knock him out of the game. They can't sit back. Jeans would have just put himself into Blight's um, shoes and said, "I can't sit back." And they're not going to sit back and let Dermot do that, you know, without doing anything. And uh, you know, he was very right. And so, he, as as um, Tiz was saying. He, he he really launched into him. All the players remember it as being a really brutal um, dismantling of Dermot before the game. Um, it really yelling at him um, and, and, and saying, today the gun's pointed at your head, son, was the expression he used. Now, what he was referring to is almost certainly something in Dermot's past that Dermot still doesn't pass this on. In, I haven't heard publicly what exactly this revelation is. No, I've, I've never heard it publicly either. He, he went over it in open mic and didn't really say. The players seem to know it, and they're careful not to say it either. Um, but the closest I got to hearing what it might have been was that um, Dermot's mother left Ireland quickly in the 1950s, and, and his father followed a year after. And, and, and to me, it sounds like it's an altercation, a family altercation around um, Dermot's parents getting together. So maybe to do with Dermot's grandparents, and and anyway, it was a it was a revelation that was um, that was passed on to Jeans on a trip on an away game. Dermot sat next to Jeans, and then Jeans a couple of weeks later breaches the confidence um, in a in a pre-game yelling <laughs> attack on Dermot, and they all talk about like um, hearing Whitman talk about the Dermot's demeanour leaving that pre-game. Um, he was, you know, f- he he was furious, and his eyes were spinning, and he, and uh, Whitman said he almost looked like he was going to rip the door off the change rooms to get out on the ground. Um, and Madigan used the expression, "Oh, you know, you would have thought you can't believe that what happened to Dermot with Yates that it happened that way. It, everything looked like it was going to happen the other way." That's what I wanted to ask. Was he was because he, he didn't see it coming, so. Maybe he was unfocused. I mean, if they knew that he was going to get hit, 
or that he was being targeted, you know, and he sees it at the last second. Well, there's no doubt that um, that Jeans thought generally they'd come for 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 him, but they they Jeans did not know about the Yates plan. So that that's just Jeans would have just generally thought they'll probably have something planned. Um, but he definitely didn't know specifically of the Yates plan because Jeans was incredibly rattled at the one second mark when 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 Burton's down stamping his foot on the ground and and Jeans has worked out what's happened. He is on his feet yelling about you get him off, get him off. Was they all report that um that he wanted him off the ground before the rest of the coaches have realised as well. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But, that, but I tell you, one person knew it was was uh, that it had happened was um, the man smoking an Alpine cigarette in the other coach's box, <laughs> um, apparently pulling back on his cigarette and going. Um, that Greg Wells said to him, um, "How did that other thing go?" Because Abbott's just kicked the first goal at the ten second mark, and and he just says, "Perfect." Is his uh, is his one word answer to it? Now I'm not going to suggest that you know everyone should have seen something like this coming, but. I will suggest that Brereton should have been a bit smarter to suspect something because, after all, he did rupture Yates' testicle in round six. And not only that, sort of sidled up to the stretcher and let him know about it too. So, I mean, me personally, I'd expect some sort of retribution, but apparently he didn't. Well, Dermot, um, he says that he saw Yates coming late, um, and the the testicle story is Yates just tells it with a lot of panache because um, <laughs> he actually had a very good last ten minutes of the game. We we almost coughed up. It's amazing to think Hawthorne forty nine points down at halftime of that round six game, mm. and then not only do they win the game, I think by eight points, yeah, but they at one point they're twenty points up. So Geelong <laughs> kicked the last couple, so it's like a seventy point turnaround. Um, and in that, the reason that Geelong come back, um, it's actually Yates is just instrumental to it in the last few minutes. He was mm. a f- wonderful footballer. And and, um, and he, as he said, he had a shot at goal to put them back within two points. And, and he said, it's very hard to kick a goal when you're trying to swing your leg around your swollen testicle. <laughs> so he, he was furious. He, he missed the state game the next week. Um, and with the testicle injury, he, uh, he Dermot went to shake his hand after the round six game. Yates refused to shake hands. Um, and then once uh, Blight had this sort of premonition that, that Dermot would come for couch, um, he just said, said in a team meeting, uh, just before a team meeting to Yates, um, I'll give you three minutes to iron out Mr. Brereton. And, uh, and Yates said, you know, I don't think I'll need three minutes. The opening chapter of your book, Tony, is exceptional. It dives straight into the lore of this great grand final and obviously the extreme toll it took on Dipper, who was wheezing, that dimpled skin like bubble wrap, as he describes, and of course we've touched on Brereton, the broken ribs. Um, in terms of courage and heroism, where does this sit in the history of Aussie rules for you? Oh, it's my number one. <laughs> but this, I'm, I'm the perfect age for this game. So I'm I'm an under-19s player, 16 years of age, and I'm actually just meeting these guys and getting to know them, but they're still leviathans. They're, they're, they're larger than life. They're the, they're the heroes I grew up with. You know, there's guys like Michael Tucks playing his 380th game or something. You know, it's just incredible that I've got my small little toehold in the under-19s, um, but at the same time, there's this side that has dominated the 80s. I mean, they... they we're up to uh, three flags and three runners-up at this point. This, this tips the ledger to 4-3. But, you know, they're one of the great sides in history. Um, and so 
so when the game has all the ingredients I mentioned um, initially, um, the courage for me is magnified by just being at that impressionable age, and 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 also because the people involved they're often the big characters of the game. Like the the just think of the exchanges. Yates is a state wingman and a really laconic and funny and charismatic man and he's the one who hits Brereton who's the, 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 the biggest figure in AFL footy at the time or, or VFL footy and then the other big clash is Dipper and Ablett you know and they're two of the really compelling figures of footy and and um, and so and so the and Platten, it's not just anyone who goes down and wonders whether the grand final parade is about to start at quarter time. Um, it's 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 Platten who goes down. Who's he been hit by? He's been hit by you know the second best player of Geelong's era in Buddha Hocking. You know who's compelling for all sorts of reasons. You know just so exquisitely skilled, and yet at the same time, you know capable of such brutality and and um, and strength and 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 violence that he that he was, and so. I think that the reason the courage is amplified is that it's you know you want you want your courage stories to be played out amongst the the big charismatic famous figures of the age and 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 even you know who's the one who has to keep running in the last quarter with a mangled hand it is Michael Tuck you know these are it's it's, it's these stories do belong to you know the ages you made mention of the fact that that was a particularly dominant era for Hawthorne now um much is made of the fact that Blight's Geelong had the firepower in that same era, but not so much the defensive cohort to match. I mean, you know by the end of the book that was their Achilles heel, but I wanted to get your take on Hawthorne in that respect. We don't really discuss it because they were the premiers, but how might a team have defeated the 1989 Hawks? I mean, was there a weakness? Well, they were very strong defensively. So, uh, uh, you know, think of Stoneham hardly had a touch in the first quarter. Mm. I mean, I think um, he was the dominant centre-half forward. Dermot said he was the best tall forward in the game in 1989. That's what Dermot said. Wow. I, I would argue it might have been Dermot or, or Dunstall um, or Lockett. Um, there were plenty of contenders for best, uh, or Kernahan for best uh, centre-half forward or full forward of the, of, but of that year, Dermot just said that Stoneham was particularly dominant that year. You no, know, just just about the best player in the game. He had one possession to quarter time and, and he's playing on Chris Mew. And um, and so Chris Mew, who never gets mentioned in the as the as amongst the great stars of, of that game. Although if you look in the best players in the paper, Mew is there, I think. So obviously the the club probably submitted those, and and the club noticed that Chris Mew was in the best players that day. Um, so there's an unsung hero and a great defender who plays eight or nine grand finals, I think. Um, then Langford obviously um, becomes a huge figure in this game, and his one-on-one with Ablett, I'd argue, is is pretty much the most compelling one-on-one key position battle in the history of grand finals. Because because Ablett, on almost anyone else, I think would have kicked thirteen or fourteen or fifteen goals that day. It was a it was a virtuoso performance that was he was completely unstoppable. And if you and if you actually watch what Ab- the ones that Langford wins, they're really hard wins. You know, Ablett's in really good position. He's edged him out, um, and Ab- and and Langford um, either takes a mark from an improbable p- position, or or 
bat, bats the ball away. And, you know, he, he had a really good day. And, and he also exploited Ablett's one weakness, which was, you know, lack of defensive intensity. And I think there are five chains from behind in the third quarter where, where Langford's involved. He's just trying to run off Ablett, show him up. Yeah. He was great at that. Yeah, yeah he was. And and so, and Collins gives up, you know, only a few kicks to, to Robert Scott. So the defence, which is kind of lauded, Gary Ayres had a pretty ordinary game, probably by his standards in '89, but um, you know what a player. So, so there was that sort of balance. Um, and I'm leaving out Kennedy. You know, Kennedy's 250 games, you know, just a star. So there was just real um, cohesion, balance, skill, toughness. They would have stood up against pretty much any forward line in the competition, and and so. I think it's a reasonable argument to say that that, that um, Hawthorne had very few weaknesses. Um, I don't know, maybe speed down back. So you know that if there had been a smaller forward line, might have might have um, run us off our feet a little. Um, but you know, and and I guess they did concede twenty one goals in that grand final. So. Um, it, it's it, 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 it wasn't a lockdown team. Not quite enough um, conceded <laughs> to see the result. <laughs> that's right. But that's the thing. Like when I actually started like looking at this game more in depth, you know, be reading your book and watching the uh, documentary and all those sorts of things, it, you do get to a stage where you're like, short of what Geelong did, which was just battering and bruising Hawthorne and and, and trying to ensure they were broken by the final siren. What could they have done? <laughs> I mean, that was the only way they got close. Well, that's right. There were some teams did okay against Hawthorne in that era. I know that during the year Hawthorne lost two, three games, wasn't it? So they lost once to Collingwood in round one, which might have been a bit of an aberration because um, you know it's round one and people are getting into stride. But um, they lost by less than two goals, I think, in round one. Then they lose in the... It's the wettest winter in Victoria's history in 1989. And in a glue pot um, against Melbourne, they... Uh, I think it's at Princess Park, they lose that one. Well, they had motivation after 88. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then they lose to the Brisbane Bears, amazingly, sort of round 19 or 20. Late, late in the season, there's a, a loss at Carrara to the Bears. Rodney Eid running around for the Bears, was he? Rodney Eid would have been running around, I reckon. <laughs> yeah, it would have been. A, I don't know, if was that it's, it's post-Nightsy, isn't it? 1989 in the Bears. Um was Feltham or one of those? Um, anyway, it was uh, it was not many losses, and and it was hard to work out how to beat Hawthorne. They lost was it six games in two years. Um, you know they were they were very difficult to beat. And certainly, the right team won that grand final um, in 1989. Um, as to how to do it, no, I, I I can't tell you which game plan would have worked for the, for the simple reason that um, that none of the, all the all, all the coaches of the era couldn't do it. I mean, maybe the ones the, the the real answer is what we've ended up with, which is a much uglier and much more heavily coached form of football, um, where team defence does beat this sort of football. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. So once again, Hawthorne's only threat, Hawthorne itself. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Clarko's cluster would have knocked him over. That's right. I always pick up a footy book um, when it comes to reading about football, and I always think I'm sort of handing over my memories. And I didn't attend the game, but I've watched the game in a sort of uh, idolised fashion, knowing the result and just enjoying the brutality and the... And you're not exactly aware of all the injuries. I don't think I was ever aware of Ayres being injured. I just knew he went off. 
and that kind of thing. But you, you seem to you just hold hand that memory over or your your feelings about the game to someone else while you read the book. And often, as an analytical person, I kind of try to avoid doing that because it becomes like a thesis. You lose the the feeling, the excitement when you return to watch the game again. But this this book doesn't do that, and I'm not sure how you've managed to do it. It, it brings through the emotion of the moment. It's almost like sitting in the stand, but with better commentary. <laughs> Because you've got to say the commentary for that for that game is not the best. I think you remarked that Don Scott does pillory. Um... Andrew Buse. Oh, <laughs> he really coughs it, doesn't he? Because you, you could mount the argument that Andrew Buse is the best midfielder on the ground for the day. I mean, maybe Pritchard is, is, is better than him. As Hawthorne people, we might put Pritch um, as, the, as, the sec, as the second best player on the ground after um, Ablett. But Buse is right up there. He, he's, he gets it six times more than anyone else in the midfield. He, he wins crucial balls. He wins both of the last two ball-ups. Um, he wins the first clearance of the game as well. <laughs> I mean, he's just fantastic. And he nails a goal too. Critical moment. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And, he, and, he, uh, <laughs> and yet Don just goes all day. <laughs> Andrew Buse is going to have to learn you cannot do that in grand finals. The pressure goes up in grand finals. And, you know, I love Don, and he's a family friend um, for many decades. And um, In fact, I saw Don Scott today. He was uh, down on the Mornington Peninsula, um, and he and my dad are very close mates. So I, I tease him in good fun, um, but he's, he'd had his eyes peeled for even a hint of fear. Any player that, uh, that, that disappointed Don got, got an earful in that commentary, didn't they? That's the other thing, too. Everyone knows that they're probably going to get hit and that it's on the cards. And not you don't really notice that many shirk the contest. It's, it's an incredible uh, willingness to compete. It is. It's amazing. It's, uh, they, they were brave men and, uh, and they were gladiators on that day. And... Um, and certainly, I don't think Don had too much to complain about in terms of courage. Is hardly a player that, um, that that shirks it. But in, in answer to your earlier question, I really appreciated what you said. It was a really about as nice a thing as anyone said about the book, which is that there is a pressure when you're going into something as iconic as this. Um, and, and as to how I did it, if I have done what you said, which is to to, to augment rather than to to um, dominate or, or, or attempt to overshadow or, you know, to sort of coexist with this iconic game. No, that's the right word. It, augment. You've made it, uh, you've taken it and you've made it better again with different... <laughs> He's done it again. ...viewpoints. Do you know what I mean? You, you get the perspectives of the individuals, not just the team, and, and it's good. What I was trying to do throughout was to not turn it into a kick-by-kick analysis of this amazing game. So if I sat there and... Um, and and just said, oh, and then, you know, Stoneham got to give it another kick because Mew went over the mark and he kicked a goal and the difference was now that. I think people wouldn't wouldn't have enjoyed that. But what I what I tried to do was to say, here's um Jason Dunstall who has just tackled um Buse. Hang on to it too long, Don, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> so he's tried to he's just tackled Buse and um dislodged it. Dermot grabs it. It's an iconic goal. We all remember it. Dermot snaps from the top of the square. And when you watch the game as closely as I do, he, Dermot should not have played on then, should he? <laughs> he should have left that kick to Dunstall. He almost got 
tackled to the ground. And anyway, it's a it's a great goal. Um, but but really, it's an opportunity at that point to talk about Dunstall because what he does is rare in that era to have a a. a a full forward. We got used to seeing it as Hawthorne fans, but to see someone accelerate into tackle a tackle like that, to have the strength to hold on, to execute in a way that key forwards just didn't. It was a, it's stuff that's twenty five years ahead of its time. Exactly. That's that's what I was going to say. Like you speak about later on in the book that it's a it's a game. The whole game is at a turning point, but this particular match is sort of out of time. It's not in its it's somewhere between the 80s games and what we begin to see with... Because they're, they're focused on tackling the Hawthorne side, aren't they? Putting pressure on the ball carrier. And that... And I mean, Tucky comes out with a game-high six tackles, which is nothing to write home about today. But back then, it just shows that he was motivated along... What do they, what do they call it? Operation Tackle. Not exactly... Not exactly... Uh, <laughs> not kill the shark or anything. <laughs> <laughs> Jeezy was a Cheltenham policeman. He wasn't going to be thinking up um, great code names, but it was. Uh, he did like Operation as a line, and um, uh, he Oper- Operation Tackle was was something that existed at Hawthorne. Even in my time, by '92, they were still banging on about forty tackles a game, forty tackles a game, forty tackles a game, and that was the target all the all the way through my time um, in the, in reserves footy and under 19s and and and. And so it was just a club rule, and um, and on and when Jeansy was asked in that documentary that I think you boys mentioned that you saw um, behind the Battle of '89, when when he gives his little analysis as to why we won, he says, "Well, look at the statistics. Where li- the kicks were about the same, the handballs were about the same, the shots at goal weren't too different. The um, it was uh, the number of total number of possessions was about the same. The one thing that separated the two sides was that Hawthorne had and you. I haven't got the stats in front of me, but did Hawthorne have uh, 48 tackles and, and Geelong had 18 or something like that? It was something like that, yeah. They, they far surpassed the 40 benchmark that they set for themselves. And, and Jeans just thinks that's the reason. And and, and Ayers talked about um, watching vision. He said, we didn't do a lot of vision training, but we watched some vision um, during the week, or a group of them did, not even the whole Hawthorne team. But a group of relevant players watched vision of Buse and Couch during the week, holding onto the ball. And so, what Don was getting at with his um, very, very unsympathetic <laughs> um, bellowing was that <laughs> Buse held onto the ball too long under pressure in grand finals and was trying to run away on people um, like it was a home and away game. But what Hawthorne had noticed was that Buse always hung onto the ball. And some players do, don't they? Like, you know that Danger's going to hold onto the ball and you know that Tom Mitchell's going to hold onto the ball and there's they just have that ability to sidestep and move their body in a way where they sort of get away with it. And Buse and Couch were both those sorts of players. They had a sidestep and they had evasive talent. And basically what was drilled into the players that week is they will hold onto the ball, watch their hips and bury them. And, and and on a few occasions that that was really timely. Um, there's one in the last quarter, and you sort of think you've watched this game a million times. But when you've got to write a book about it, you really micro watch it. So you watch it for every disposal to see what each person did. And someone who goes really well on a micro watch in that last quarter is Chris Whitman. Um, 
and and you know never talked about really as a, a as a great of this era just as a he's just thought of as a you know one of the players that played a lot um but what a what a crucial half of football he plays as without platen um, and there's one where he gets he just gets couch couches holds on a little long takes his side step he's ready to get out and um Geelong have got a lot of momentum at this point and and Whitman gets him you know takes him in the tackle it's probably an incorrect disposal spills to Curran Curran finds Dunstall Dunstall kicks a goal and when Hawthorne are dead on their feet in the last quarter there's only a couple of goals to the Hawks in that quarter and that one from Dunstall um, is absolutely the result of a Chris Whitman tackle and a result of Operation Tackle because um, they were thinking about Couch The more you look into it it just seems that both teams came into this game with an emphasis on physicality, but Hawthorne was the team that got the balance just right. Geelong went a bit too far, and they and they sort of went over over the cliff with their physicality, and then it led to just being undisciplined. And one thing I noticed was, uh, I, I wanted to get your take on this. Um, Gary Hocking, I, I felt, was uh, was in your crosshairs, Tony. Well, it's interesting. It's a hard one with Gary Hocking because he's been in everyone's crosshairs for 30 years, and I feel... <laughs> I feel a little sorry for Buddha because I think he's a magnificent footballer and, and, and actually didn't have he didn't have a very good day, but he did do some very good things on the day. He did some things that probably only Buddha could have done, on other than you know Ablett and a couple of others. But he was amongst the most talented players. Yeah, but that that hit from Dipper on Buddha is just magnificent. Oh, I, I magnificent! Could... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it results in a Hawthorne goal. He's evened it up. And plays on. Yeah, it's just to hear D- Dipper talk about that. It's just he's, <laughs> he's like he just starts off with I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on your podcast. No, go but, for uh, it. No, I, I think this is the this is the um, passage that I'm going to get Nick to read out. Oh, okay, to, uh, yeah, actually, <laughs> I, I know I was going to bring it up before because uh, you, you didn't necessarily want to do a um, a kick by kick book, but the, the passage that we both very much enjoyed. Uh, it happens to be one of those. So if, if you'll indulge us for a second, I'd like to read out this passage. I think it'll sell the listeners too. I'll, I'll, I'll give it the, the proper gravity. Uh, <laughs> you can hear the first notes of hope in the pitch of the crowd. The tide feels like it's turning. Then Dipper knocks out Gary Hocking's teeth. All day the violence has come thick and fast, but it's mainly hip and shoulders and late forearms and errant spoils and vicious bumps. The loophole in the rules is how Brereton terms knocking out people on the periphery of the contest. All day they go on, shocking to the eye when you watch them now, in this cleaner, fairer era, in which the game's lawmakers aim first and foremost to protect players' heads. Well, there's none of that grey zone as Dipper unloads. His elbow swings through like a cricket bat to Hocking's mouth. Says Dipper, I just ran straight at him. F*** you, bang. I wanted to call the chapter F*** you, bang, but it was a bit... uh, I think it's just called bang, the chapter, and it was... It is a horrible hit. He gets five for it. But when you think um, Terry Danaher got 11 the next year, I mean, it's worse than Terry Danaher's hit on um, on, on Gavin Brown. And it is um, it is just brutal. Dipper's, Dipper is indignant that he shouldn't have got as many as five, but he definitely deserved, <laughs> he, he definitely deserved all five. And he, he goes on and says, one of my best hits, he said. I just f***ing saw him and went bang. One of my best hits. <laughs> yeah, he was there. And I said, I said to him... Um, Oh, Dipper, is that um, – had you tallied it up? Had you thought, you know, he hadn't been good to, to rat, so you were going to fix him up? 
And he goes, no, nah, I didn't go around the ground going, oh, here's your report card for the day. <laughs> <laughs> he was just f***ing there. So I went, bang. It was just very, uh, it was very dipper. It's uh, not, not very apologetic, not very remorseful. <laughs> I think Buddha actually did score on Tipper's report card. It was an FU. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's, um... But this is the kind of scallywag thing you, you speak about in the book, isn't it? This is what Jeans wanted to harness. He saw these players as and famously with Dipper he he's, he dresses him down to get the most out of him but he gets these players that are scallywags like Dermot and Dipper and gets gets the most out of them but not with a not with a system like Clarkson would do but by sort of empowering them to control themselves oh, absolutely he 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 had a he had an ability to allow them the freedom to be themselves and so you know the that the loud ones were allowed to be loud and um and it wasn't that but they would have to follow the rules so um in the same way as blight had trouble with with abbott the exception um jeans didn't tolerate exceptions uh very very well so you know dermot led the running dipper trained trained harder than anybody and was um the loudest and first in team meetings and no, so but, but he liked the comedy. So Jeans liked that these guys were funny and and social, and that they went out. and And Dipper talks about Jeans sitting in the silently in in the um, sauna on Sunday mornings when the players would go down there post their big Saturday nights, and and they'd sit in the sauna and probably sweat beer out of themselves, to be honest. Um, <laughs> and and Dipper said that he used to sit there and just store up the names and the stories of of the girls they were talking about and, and you'd even hear them come back at you you know so on the field you'd be going yeah you're being concentrating too much on vanessa from the tunnel you know that, sort of, <laughs> that um the jeans kind of took notes um on on their social lives and um but but he also allowed it to happen so it was a it was a, a fun environment and and, it, and i always think that the most successful coaches have that. They have that. I looked at Clarkson last year, and it was almost my moment of the year. Obviously, that game meant a lot to us. Watching that GWS um, game in the snow game in um, Canberra, but the the moment of the year is that the the shirt off. Like it's just um, the idea that he'd go and and you know get the chest out and 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 run alongside the boundary. It was it just it's so funny and so. And so invigorating in that, oh, those guys must just think he is a combination of fantastic, funny, crazy, um, intense, brilliant. But, but all those things come out and you've got a smile on your face. Um, and, and then I heard Clarkson's speech at the Crimmins Medal last year and went, well, he's got it. He's got what Gene's had, which is that ability to, to um, inspire and befriend, but also be a little bit scary and a bit mental. You know that that you know that Dipper talks about the wrestling with jeans. You know that he'd he'd have his cop hold, so you just couldn't beat him. He said lever his body into a position, so you just couldn't get him off. You know, you're thinking how and Dipper again with all the swearing. He just says an f every sentence. He um he said oh people would say how the f- his 55-year-old Alan Jeans <laughs> beating you, you know, in a, in a wrestle. I and mean, he'd just leave all his body and I just couldn't get rid of him. And he used to nibble on my ear what, going, say I'm the better man, say oh. I'm the better man. <laughs> and, uh, and Dipper said it was humiliating. Eventually you had to say he, would, he was the better man and then he'd get off. But um, My favourite bit of that is when he would get off, uh, Jeans would say, oh, you weak prick or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> 
Yeah. Like chastising them for eventually surrendering when they had no choice. Yeah, that's right. And that, and it is, it's interesting, you talk about also how to build this book. Well, you just need personalities and characters. And, and the Gene's character is one that I learnt a lot about. I had him as this sort of um, very uh, enormously respected, quietly, reasonably quietly spoken, but beautiful speaker when he spoke. Um, but there was, I, I sort of saw him as not dour or conservative, but that I had much more of a public view of genes. But the players have, don't have that view at all. They see him as all the things I said before: charismatic, funny, scary, intense. Um, all those things they remember the the ones who were coached properly by him. Um, and 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 just to get that personality of genes, just how intensely he was chasing this back-to-back um, premiership, you know. And I, and I got a, one of my favourite stories in the book is um, John Oraglaso, um, reserves player of my inti- vintage. Um, he told about he and Paul Cooper went over to <laughs> Jeans' house and had a game of tennis, and and um, they played a five-setter on a 35-degree day, and Jeans had already had his aneurysm. And there's a moment where Jeans looks like he's down for the count. He's lying sprawled next to the brick wall after diving for a low backhand in the fifth set. And um, and Oraglasa said, I thought I'd killed the coach. I thought I was going to be on the six o'clock news. And um, and Mary is yelling out from there, are you okay, Alan, from the from the balcony? Like, it was bad. And then finally he rises. Um, and he's okay, uh, but but just that sense that he couldn't, he wouldn't quit a tennis game because he was behind. You know, he had to win, um, and and that burning intensity that that I I don't think we we saw that as a public. We just saw yes, sir, the boys played very well today, and you know it's uh, important. I'm very pleased with how the season is going so far. It was just it was almost a ream of cliche and 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 nothingness wasn't it the, the... oh my god he is alistair clarkson yeah. <laughs> alistair clarkson is jeans with the really pleasing thing but the thing is he he wouldn't have coached two in a row it's two for the club back to back well that's right it's a it was the deal that was done with joyce and you know that that, that helped my story and and creates part of the legend of 89 as well that that um that jeans missed out and he would have felt the pain of missing 88 he did feel that pain and um and he made a pact with Joyce on the on the night of the '88 premiership. In fact, no, he made it on the night of the of the handover. So at the end of '87, when Joyce, you know, edges out Tesmar for that year as the caretaker, um, he says, "We're going to go back to back. You're going to do leg one, and I'm going to do leg two. And, uh, and and it was a bedside promise. Do you think that is in the offing again? What is you saying that Alistair's sick? No, no, no. I just mean there could be some kind of deal with uh, Sam and and L coming up. Well, maybe. Would Clarko give it away? <laughs> I don't know. It's a. I've been really surprised because I thought there was a window. So I thought that with all he'd achieved, Clarkson at some point would go somewhere else and do it again. I, and I thought that that window was a few years ago, really. Um, I, I didn't think he'd be up for, yeah, rebuilding, if you'd call it. It doesn't really feel like it's been a rebuild, but, you know, it's certainly, it, it was always going to be more difficult where we'd where we miss the finals and or be in the lower half of the eight. Well, we call it rebuilding, yeah. <laughs> One of our rebuilding years was the prelim. <laughs> but... Um, wasn't it, or was it, or were we top six? It might have been a semi. Yeah. Well, it, certain... it's rebuilding insofar as constructing a bit more of the premiership cabinet. Well, that's right. It's uh, we're, we're at the start of the season. You feel like you can't win the flag, and um, 
And I guess I felt that way last year. We couldn't win the flag from the from round one. And I actually don't feel that way this season. I, I watched, um, especially after I watched round one, I thought, you know, this is not a rebuild year. This is a, we're a genuine chance here. But the, I, 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 I thought there was a chance that Clarkson would would go a few years ago for one of the Carlton's or the, you know, one of the teams that had had lots of good low picks and it were a great chance to be contending quickly. I've been massively impressed. I just believe him now. I believe that he he feels like he feels the spirit of Kennedy and Jeans and 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 it, it feels like he's part of something that he loves. This this thing, this thing that people like me who were born into it, you know. And Dad talked about Kennedy my whole life, and um, and there is a certain sort of spirit, a Hawthorneness, uh, a, a, a set of values, a, um, a love for family and community. What keeps that going? What carries that through from generation to generation? Because there's so many people pass through the club. How do they keep those values going? Well, I think I think it becomes that the totem, um, the, the the figureheads of the of the club have are, are very important in that, and and so that. Kennedy handed to Park and who handed to Jeans. Although maybe Jeans and, and Kennedy were more contemporaries and they just had a similar value set. Um, then, then all the all the coaches, irrespective of what sort of success we had in the next generation. But men like Peter Knight's an enormous quality of individual um, who's given so much to that club in so many capacities. Um, including as an administrator. That Peter Schwab is as good a person in footy as I've ever met. He's just a funny and warm and generous and, you know, one of the really sad... I have a chapter in the book on Schwabby and, and, and him missing 89. Just a, a, a tragic situation that a, a player who was in no way dirty had his one sort of mind slip in, a, in the second semi. It cost him, you know, the most famous game of his career. Um, so these people were at the helm throughout so we never lost the kind of leadership that made the place great and and I think it's a place that doesn't tolerate um, ego in the way that maybe some other clubs do and so that the value set requires hard work the, um, not getting ahead of yourself believing in the collective above the individual um, and, and so that when people like Hodge are spotted and, and Sam Mitchell and others, they they just slot into a, a, a tradition and an ethic and, and, and it kind of ends up being a real cliche, but it feels like a Hawthorne-ness, you know, and and, and and so you and so the success continues. And I think if you come in with a massive ego and that if you I don't know who the example is because you end up you know, naming someone as being a difficult personality or as an individualist, but um, if they come in, I think they don't get tolerated um, in that way. And other clubs might try to do it, but I don't think they can. I don't think they. And, and it, yeah, and it perpetuates. Well, a big example of that would be Gary Ablett, the bloke who nearly won the match. Yeah, that's right. So, Ablett. So. The, Ablett's a really interesting one. So he, he obviously comes to Hawthorne, and I did quite a lot of research on the Ablett situation because he was um, it wasn't it wasn't like he wasn't an obvious talent. So Peter Schwab is saying this is this guy's um, 
shouldn't be playing reserves. You know, in 1982, he's just so much better than this competition. And Schwabby was in the twos a bit that year. Um, Peter Curran said, even then, he was the best player I've ever seen. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> he's playing, he's playing seconds footy, and Peter Curran says the things, the feats he was doing on the field were just incredible. Um, and Jeans was just finding it. They just found it very difficult to to get him to attend. So you know, he was living in, um, he was living, was I think it was in um, northern suburbs. It might have been Faulkner. He was living. And he with a house full of bikies and um, and the football manager would drive across town forty minutes to get him to training and and it was just a constant battle to have him attend and participate and follow team rules and 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 so and then he plays that game that I think we see a lot of footage where he kicks that three those three goals right it was his second game or third game for Hawthorne. Um, and it's his last game for Hawthorne as well, so it might have been his fifth or seventh game. Um, and and Schwabby said, oh, he should not have been dropped after that. He should have played 82 finals with Dermot, but he was dropped after that, and he was he didn't really recover and was, you know, he cracked the shits with Jeans. Jeans had sort of cracked the shits with Ablett, um, and that's where it ended. And so you sort of think, oh, that's Jeans not tolerating. He wouldn't tolerate it. Um, but then, at the end of 87, when Jeans has his aneurysm, Ablett is a star of the competition. Hawthorne tried to get him back. We almost got him back. Um, we signed him to five-year deal, and he, re- he reneged during the cooling-off period of the contract. <laughs> so, wow. So, so it's not like... So Jeans is, of course, driving that. I mean, mind you, I'm not sure if this was pre or or post aneurysm he probably wasn't doing much if he was you know just immediately after surgery but he would have to approve a decision to 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 sign Abbott to a five-year deal so clearly knowing what he'd be getting into Hawthorne was willing to gamble again on trying to get Gary Abbott right and to play in Hawthorne colours um we would have won that game by more than (laughs) six points Um, but yeah so it is interesting I don't think Hawthorne do tolerate um, egos and individuals to that extent but you could not have fixed Gary Ablett I reckon um, in in the sense that he's never going to toe the line So, uh, so, so a good example being that Malcolm Blight was brilliant at accommodating and cajoling and making sure that he attended training and not putting up with the sort of crap that Hafey had put up with and Devine had put up with. And he ha- and there's a famous spe- um, bridge meeting that's in the book, um, Ballyang Sanctuary, and he gets on a bridge and he says, you walk that way across to your car and you go to training, um, uh, Gary, or you go that way and you don't ever come back to the club. You know, And it's this sort of ultimate um, ultimatum that becomes part of law um, and Gary of course decides to go to training but you know he still had to have leeway he was allowed to go to church on Sundays and he was um, and it got you know even more difficult in the early two thousand in the early 1990s and so he was always the exception and Blight was quite good at managing him and and so I still think that had we got Ablett um, there would have been accommodation you, you couldn't he would not blend into a team like Stars like um, Dunstall and and Dermot and Platten and others were, were malleable to that team ethic. I think it would have been much harder with Ablett. Just want to circle back around to something. Um, we, we talk about clubs with ego, and this is more for my own 
curiosity, Tony. So you, you'll have to um, just indulge me for a sec. Tears, this is directed to you, actually. Um, a club with ego, go. Uh, no, no, I won't go first. Now go ahead, Tony. A club with ego? Uh, Collingwood. <laughs> so Collingwood have a massive ego um, and believe that the, the competition revolves around them. And the fewer clubs in the competition for them to be Collingwood with, the better. Um, they, they, they're forever bubbling along a plan to um, have some, you know, that, that secretly they'd like it to be a six-team comp with Carlton and Essendon. And <laughs> we probably wouldn't get in because we only came into the comp in 1925 or something like that. Um, oh, well, it's just, uh, it's reassuring to have Eddie Maguire as part of the COVID-19 action plan then. <laughs> so they're the most obvious one. And, and the example I give is... Why is there a away strip accommodation? Yes, yeah. It, it, it makes, it's, it's, it's infuriating. So don't just don't give it. Don't they don't get that? So you just say you can play in your stripes. Yes, Eddie, you can, but you won't get the four points. <laughs> it's, it's over. So that's the end of the discussion, right? You just say you can be like the other clubs with an away strip, or you can not have, or you can play in your your home strip. Um, but you won't get the four points, and we'll see what happens. I honestly thought that Tiz would be raring to go and happy to volunteer his answer because I was sure he was going to say Essendon. Yeah, it has to be Essendon. <laughs> I been... knew it! I knew it! <laughs> but a close second, I think, is Sydney. Oh, really? Yeah, I, I just think they're really all about themselves, that mob. Did you think that blood spirit stuff was... Um... Well, I mean, maybe it's just the impact of Paul Ruse in the media, but <laughs> it's just it's just intolerable. <laughs> I found them very admirable in that era. With the, and I, I said I like Sydney because of Buddy. I, I'm one of those Hawthorne supporters that has in no way. <laughs> I haven't even deviated very far in my love for Buddy. I'm, I'm pretty much as true as I was in 2010 as I am today um, with Buddy Love. Yeah, no, I hear you exactly. I'm exactly the same, Tony. I got to admit. I mean, having a an ex girlfriend that's a Swan supporter that'll do that to you. But I think even if that wasn't the case, you have to love Buddy. I, I can't see it any other way. I love him too much. In this era without content, they've had Ross Lyon on for questioning on the AFL.com.au and someone asked him, would he like to apologise for bringing the game into disrepute? <laughs> 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 and did he ever get bored watching his own side? <laughs> and I... Honestly, when I look back at 89 and I see some of the things Hawthorne were able to do during the um, three-peat, I do look at that era as like a dark ages where um, the West Coast were drugged up and Sydney were playing this heavily defensive style. That's an era lost. And the, the shining light there is Geelong and Hawthorne again after that period. Yeah, that's that's true. I mean, the, those games, those 05, 06 games, um, as much as they... Uh, compelling. Close. For, they're close, really, yeah. and they're always going to be close because if you if it's going to if it's a four goal to three game, it's going to be close, <laughs> right? So, um, yeah. So it, it's it certainly wasn't good for football. The, the 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 coaches have not been good for football. Is the story just that um, defence wins premierships? Do you think? Because Hawthorne's defence was better in '89. It was much better during the three peat. It wasn't as good in 2012. Um, is that the story of football? If the defences are allowed to be as good as that, you're going to you're going to lend yourself to low scoring, very tactical, highly chess like football, and that we need to do something about that, like Clarko has been suggesting recently. Well, 
what Blight said to me when in the research for this book was that every great team for 100 years has had one great defender. If you haven't got one great defender, you will not win a premiership. And he said if you want to win multiple premierships, you need to have two great defenders. And if you have a look at the... That, that seems to hold up for me. Um, as to whether... Certainly in, in recent times, like I, I, I'm too football stupid. I mean, I just haven't sat there for the 300 hours of meetings to really know how these defensive structures move and work. And so, you know, even obviously you can't substitute a player, um, interchange a player when the game is on the opposite side of the ground or they'd all do it. The web must fall apart um, even for three minutes if players are interchanging. Um and and so, sort of logically, I know that, but but I I still think, well, it's just frustrating. Like, w- what if Ablett was there? What if you said he's not going to be part of any defensive structures? He's just going to sit in the square and take hangers, and you can stick as many in front of him as you like. But um, we're going to block them, and he's going to have enough opportunity to run at it. You just sort of feel like there should be a return somehow. We can get. I don't know which player does it. Like. Would Carey do it? Yeah, the best player in the comp goes to Sydney and they play him off the wing. I couldn't believe it. You know, Buddy off the wing, I just shaking my head. He can kick him from 70, I know, and it looks fantastic, but that's not the place to play him. <laughs> well, on that ground, you just think that if you leave him at home and don't have the defence... But, but it's just interesting that none of them choose to do that. So Clarko doesn't choose to do that. I mean, mind you, we haven't had the forward to do it, but you'd think... Like who is the player that of this generation who is being, who is Richo or who is Mitch Lewis? Is it? No, I hope it is. <laughs> but there, there's like like let's say Josh Kennedy. For me, Josh Kennedy's a massive talent. In 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 the eighties, he'd kick hundreds of goals. Um, he now kicks sixty or seventy a year. But if he was one on one with space, um, I imagine he'd be a, a hundred goal kicker. Um, I'm less of a Tom Hawkins man, but Hawkins would would have kicked a lot of goals in the old days, wouldn't he? Um, uh, it's but it's it's funny that all these there have there have been lots of good players, but none of them can kick a hundred. And I refuse to believe that that the Dunstall and Ablett and and Lockett are so much better than every player for the last twenty years. That um, so it's clearly the the game that's that's wrong, um, and it's just whether. Is there someone who could take the gamble um, and win? Which is to say, um, we're going to we're going to let them. They can do whatever they want with their defensive structures, but we're going to we're going to. You know, what do you what what do you do? Do you have to pick up every defender one on one? I don't know. How do you do it? How do you how do you give a forward space again? There's a chapter in the book called "A Beautiful Anachronism," um, which basically just says that why this game is doubly nostalgic is that. Um, you, there's a feeling it can never happen again. It's beautiful, and it and it can never happen again. And 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 there's a quote from I went to a mid-year event. In fact, I was MC at an at a mid-year event at Hawthorne when Clarkson addressed the the club, and and he was saying um, someone said, "Oh, look, do you think the cluster in retrospect does it sort of sadden you because you know I lot what think of games like '89 and." Think of um, footy in the old days, and it was better than watching um, defensive webs move across grounds. And Clarkson said, "Look, oh, I love watching '89 as well. Um, there's nothing more exciting than watching a one-on-one forward, fullback sort of thing. 
Um, don't, I loved watching forwards kick big bags of goals. Um, but my job's being a coach, and um, and the miracle isn't that um, we've got these intense defensive structures now. The miracle is why was Peter Hudson allowed to stand one on one with an opponent when Peter Hudson was a five times better footballer than the person he was standing on? I mean, it was just. It was just ridiculous. He was always going to kick 100 goals a year. And so he said the miracle and the beauty and we should cherish our memories of what happened, but but obviously it couldn't continue to happen if you want to win games of football and my job is to win games of football. So so, so that's what he said and, and, and it did make me... That's why I came up with the kind of title, the a beautiful anachronism, because it just won't happen again. I reckon we've taken up almost an hour of your time here, Tony. So uh, we may have to wrap it up. Um, but, but I mean, how do you do so properly? I mean, well, actually, there is one revelation we need to uh, tackle. Go on. And that is um, who replaced Tucky on the list when they finally <laughs> gave him the elbow. I was trying to not make this very self-indulgent, this book. I've written a piece about the 89 Grand Final for a newspaper that was very self-indulgent. It was all about my experience of watching the game. But I was really trying to make this about the players and the club's experience of of going through this time. But occasionally I'd slot my own little mentions in and and it is a, a, a fact, maybe a slightly sad fact, and certainly a tribute to Tucky's longevity, that um, he was... He replaced my dad in the VFL seniors in 1972. Um, if it wasn't a, a perfect swap, it was either that week or the week after. The dad basically went permanently out of the side and Tucky went permanently in. Um, and then uh, <laughs> then uh, 18 years later, in 1991 or uh, 19 years later, um, Tucky was forced to retire after his 426th game furious he absolutely believed he could do another year and he he was very upset with um alan joyce and match committee who made him retire and and that was the day i was uh in november of of 1991 i was put on the uh, on the hawthorne senior list so um wilson out tuck in and then tuck out wilson in and (laughs) i can tell you i can tell you which one of those uh Change exchanges worked better. Um, my zero game tally uh, would suggest maybe that um, that uh, yeah, Tucky had a point. Maybe he could have played another year. Hell of a question to end on, Tiz. <laughs> I just thought it was remarkable. I just, <laughs> it is. It it's is those things that that you learn about that, that sort of stay with you. The curiosities and the one thing I could do is read for you the Langer's bit about Dipper. Do you want me to read that for you? It's. I think that's a beautiful section. Yeah, absolutely. So one of my favourite bits in the book, in fact, the only bit that I just lifted and didn't change a word was when um, I asked Chris Langford for his moment of the '89 Grand Final, and he just. Um, said the clear one for him was involved Dipper. This is it. The moment I remember was when they were 11 points down and the ball was contested and came loose from a marking contest. It came loose pretty much on the edge of the square on their half-forward flank on the southern stand side. It was maybe a couple of minutes to go on the clock and they were coming home with a wet sail. It was down to the wire and there were four pairs of Geelong and Hawthorne players, one-on-one and the ball in the middle. Eight people, almost in a circle, ring-a-ring-a-rosy. The ball's in the middle, and that's the whole thing. Do I leave my man? Abbott's there. Do I go? Or is he peeling off to try to get a handball? What do I do? And Buddha Hocking is there, and Neville Brund is there, these guys loitering, and then Dipper dies on the ball. It was just that moment of hesitation when everyone is going, 
What do I do? Do I peel off or do I go for it? Do I peel off? And Dipper's jumped on it. We didn't know Dipper's state of health, his state of repair at that time. We had no idea. But at that point, I knew we'd got him. Always believed we had him. And then I began to have doubts as they kicked a few goals. Those last two or three, I'm thinking maybe we're down and out here. We're on the ropes. And then that contest when Dipper dived on the ball and everyone's then jumped on top of him and the umpire's called ball up. And I thought, that's it, that's it. We want this more than they do. The fact Dipper did it with broken ribs is ridiculous. That's it for me. That's my favourite Dipper story. He was fearless. He was tough. Not tough as in go out and hurting people. And yes, he did that. He did hurt people. But he was tough because you couldn't hurt him. He was tough because he didn't feel it and didn't worry about it. So yeah, a lot of people say he was tough because he had sharp elbows and that sort of thing. Dipper was tough because you could beat it up, you could break it, you could cut it. Didn't make any difference. You didn't stop Dipper that way. The only way you could stop Dipper was get the ball, run faster, jump higher. You couldn't beat Dipper mentally or physically. You had to beat him with skill. And there aren't many footballers like that. There are guys who can run back and take a mark looking at the ball and all that sort of stuff, but they're still skin and bones. They're still flesh and they still feel pain and they still get knocked about and they still get hurt. But Dipper wasn't like that. It wasn't that he did spectacular, courageous things running back with the flight of the ball. It was the fact that you couldn't hurt him. He was just so physically tough and mentally tough. And I don't think there are many people you can honestly describe as that type of footballer that were just good and fearless and unbreakable. And when it comes to my moment of that grand final, nothing comes close to that. Dipper played most of the game with broken ribs and a punctured lung and was still the one who made the difference at the end. Such a fantastic excerpt from the book, one of my favourites. And uh, I think it's fitting that we go out on that. Uh, That ties a nice bow in it. Um, Tony, tell us about this book and where to get it. Where can can listeners, well, not rush out and go get it because you're not quite allowed to do that right now, but where is it available? Uh, So nothing better than releasing a book in a pandemic. (laughs) Uh, you've got a captive audience, Tony. <laughs> That's right. I've um, I've been told that bookshops are actually 45% up on sales there you um, go. as a result of people having time to read. So definitely you can go to your major retailers and, and order it and they'll deliver online. Um, one of the ones, Booktopia have definitely got it online if you go to the, the major online stores. Um, and uh, the AFL shops have got it. Dimmicks have got it. Um, Hawthorne Footy Club will have it soon if they haven't already. And, uh, and if you want a signed copy, um, I have been uh, sending them out as part of my, uh, <laughs> my isolation industry. So I've uh, sent a few books out to, to keen fans. So if you want a signed copy um, for 35 bucks, I could send me an address um, on email or Twitter or something and, and then I'll, um, I'll send you a book. So that's uh, there's there's a few ways of getting it. Yeah, options for days, and we absolutely encourage our listeners to do so. Because echoing something that it was touched on before, this is a book that genuinely enhances the game. Like it is a wonderful read, and it was very easy to once I reread it in preparation for this. You know, you put it down, and then suddenly you find yourself watching the highlights, and then you chuck on the documentary, and you just. Uh, you get so swept up in it, and, and that's a credit to you, Tony. I think it's a fantastic book, and we both very much enjoyed it. Oh, thank you. Viva La 89. Uh, <laughs> it seems it gets, just gets bigger. I thought it might have done its dash after 30 years when we all had the anniversaries last year, but nothing like a, a pandemic to get everyone just looking at old games again. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, 
So, uh, yeah, it's, it's really, it, it, is, it is the day of days is how I've signed a lot of books, and it certainly is that. I think we've proved right here on this podcast that uh, we could talk for many, many more hours about it. It is a classic game, and uh, we thank you for your company and your time this evening, Tony. Thank you very much, Tiz and Nick. Well, there it is, a special edition of the Hawk Talk podcast, chatting with author Tony Wilson about his book 1989, The Great Grand Final. And uh, Tiz, we just enjoyed every second of that. Yeah, the, the love for Hawthorne is palpable. Obviously, his dad represented them in the 71 Grand Final premiership side, and, and then he was there during the period of 89. So um, fascinating stuff with relation to Tucky. But... Uh, <laughs> It's a good read, isn't it? It's a fantastic read, and reading is one of the last things you can actually do with your time at the moment. You can't go anywhere, so uh, why not pick up an excellent book? You can uh, grab 1989, The Great Grand Final, from all good book retailers. Get it online, obviously. Don't have to head out or anything. Get it delivered right to your door. And uh, I want to emphasize again, as we did during the interview, it just enhances the game. It's such a brilliant read, and yeah, absolutely pick up a copy. So much happened after this game, too. There were- not all of them were able to celebrate. A few of the injuries curtailed the celebrations. And uh, it's remarkable they came back and won another grand final in 91. It's just one of those things where we could have Tony back on the show. We could talk about this for ages. Nothing better than talking about premierships. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we're doing these days, Tiz. I mean, Hawthorne earned the right. <laughs> Very proud history indeed. In fact, something we've been doing lately for the podcast is we've been, uh, well, we've had one in the can already, live streams. We've been picking out some classic matches and uh, live streaming them on YouTube and having a chat room beside that the stream of the game. And that, that was good fun, the one we did. It was round two, uh, round two, 2014 against Essendon. Everyone will remember it. Cyril kicks the winner. And, uh, and then Tomo just... Absolutely goes apoplectic with rage. <laughs> That's one of the great appeals of the match, obviously. So what are we up for next? That is a great question. Um, I thought we might do something for Easter Monday, but as always, it's just a matter of, you know, what, what game do people want to watch? There's one about 99, I think, with Harford from the boundary down at Cadinia Park. All right, I'm not a miracle worker. I mean, <laughs> where, where are these games? I have to pick them out, Tiz. I have to find them somehow. Yeah, it's a bit tough, some of that. No, people have been really good so far in terms of nominating... Um, some games for us to, to put on the live stream and get the community all watching at once and, and having a lot of fun with that. Uh, if you would like to contribute in that regard, at Pod on Twitter, that's the place to go. Uh, Facebook.com slash Pod is there for you as well and Patreon.com slash Pod if you want to keep on supporting the show so we can do more stuff like this. And um, I can see that a few people have jumped on in the last week or so, which is... God, that's so good to see. I know people are doing it tough at the moment, so to see people loving and supporting this show is uh, really heartwarming. Well, that was a lot of fun tonight, so I hope uh, everyone enjoys his book and um, that he writes something else soon. Absolutely. Uh, if you did enjoy this, obviously hit us up, but let Tony know as well. Uh, I'm sure he'd, sure he'd appreciate it. Um, yeah, we enjoyed every second, as I said, and... Uh, well, we'll look forward to see what happens next with the Hawk Talk podcast. With no season, we've got to get creative. So that's something to look forward to right here on the Hawk Talk podcast. We are a happy team at Hawthorne. No pressure, man. Eh? <laughs> <laughs>